Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, Mamma Mia, I hope you guys have your crying hats on. Do you have your boo-hoo shoes and on? And your laughter, and your laughter panties on. Your yes. laughter jackets. Yes, your laughter jackets and panties. You have to make sure you are covered on the top as well as on the bottom or else you can't go into the yuck restaurant. And I mean yuck in a yuck yuck way. In a, uh, this is a great, this is solid. Solid start. Guys, so I've like been yuck, crying yuck, for hours. A yuck yuck laugh and not a yucky gross. Right, 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 right. Because it's Gilda Radner. It's a song usually. Touch me. Baby, Ugh. with your clothes, clothes on. on, come on. Kiss me, honey, <laughs> with your mouth closed. I forget the rest <laughs> of it, but I just know that part. Gilda Radner, uh, if you are not familiar with her, go live under a hole. That's not true. <laughs> yes. I'm glad that you're here today to learn along with us. Gilda Radner for me is ob- obvious. One of my biggest inspirations, I've been obsessed with her since the second I was born. I couldn't Whoa. even walk yet, and wow. I loved Gilda Radner. My first words were, Gilda Radner! And my mom was terrified. She didn't know why I said it first. In 1989, Jackie Zabrowski learned to love Gilda Radner at the early age of two years old. Growing up in oh Queens, New York. Oh my God, you York. know what year I was born? <laughs> You said what year year you were born? Literally yesterday at page seven. So you remembered? My oh my god! Nineteen eighty seven, great year, remember. but also two years before Gilda Radner died. Yep, she died prematurely. <laughs> Those are related, are they? Can we can we do the fun part before we get to the sad <laughs> part? Yes, this episode was one of those trickery episodes where we went into it being like, God. So excited to do Gilda Radner. She's such just a bright, joyous inspiration. And then you you real quickly realize you're like, oh right. And then there's that whole incredibly whole tragic side. death part. And we will get to that part, but come on, there's so much to love here. She is such an inspiration to so many people. I think every not just the not just female too, I think many male cast members who ended up on SNL were greatly, greatly inspired Hell by yeah. Gilda Radner. Oh, yeah. The, the Bill Hader in the documentary, which I'm yeah. going to go ahead and no. say, please, uh. on Hulu, love Gilda. Love it, Gilda. It is a wonderful, I mean, it's all of these old videos of them, old recordings of her, and stuff that you would never see elsewhere that documents most of her life. And uh, it you is- will, You will need your cry hat. Oh, yes. yeah. Your boo-hoo shoes. But also your laughter Panties I know, and it the jacket. So many funny parts. <laughs> of course, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. 
You've got the nerds. Baba Wawa. So Baba Wawa. There's so she's so funny, and I love to. I forget how incredible her physicality is. She's such a great physical. Comedian. Oh yeah, her physical comedy is like one of the best parts about her. I think her characters sure. were in every fiber of her being, and it was something that she created. What I love about this too is that she makes no bones about the fact that not only she always wanted to perform, and she's always thrown her whole body and life and mind into it, but it was also something that she. It wasn't like it just came to her naturally. All of this just kind of happened. She's another one of those people that hustled her fucking ass off in a mm-hmm. time period when especially women in comedy were something that was not even thought about. It was a novelty more than anything. Yes, and then it wasn't that she could have been, she never even saw that she was going to be the nonstop powerhouse of comedy that she was for the short amount of time that she was able to do it. She just wanted to perform. She just Mm -hmm. wanted to make people laugh. And she goes on to say, no matter what career she had found herself in, all she wanted to do was be funny and to be able to be herself. And I will say, though, that always comes from somewhere, right? And and that always comes from a childhood that What are you talking has... about? I have no demons. I don't have any demons. I'm not one <laughs> right? demon lives inside of me. I've never frowned before. I mean, that's what I love, in a way, about comedy communities, especially, you know, go- coming up in the New York City stand-up comedy scene, and now seeing all of the many, not all of, not nearly all of, but many of the people we came up with being huge successes at this point. I mean, it's it's a community of broken toys, and I love that about it, because it's so much more real and so much more interesting than, let's say, like a, a, a community of, of like, um, I don't want to insult anybody's profession right now, I'm going to say bankers, but please, if you're a banker, I'm not insulting There's you. There's a I'm lot of saying. bankers that have problems as well. It's really just Sure, anyone- but it's like... A lot of well-adjusted people, you know, they go to college, they they join the fraternity or the sorority, they leave, they get a nice job, they have a nice family, and that's a great way to live. I'm not bashing yeah, oh, that way to live. Wow, congratulations, you have a happy life. Aren't you special? <laughs> All right? But I'm just saying I'm always drawn to, personally, those people that have these... That, that come from these places that, that have this drive to entertain, have this drive to... And they're a little to, bit of misfits. Yes, yeah. they're misfits. They're, they're lost boys and girls. They're, they're fascinating human beings. And Gilda Radner, I love in the documentary, she even says, she's like, I know where my comedy came from. Yeah, and, and, and being so open about it, and I think that's also another thing that mm-hmm. I will always find it is the best and the worst part about comedians is that we are very open for the most part about what the demons are inside of us. Right. I think that it is something that you'll see also with Gilda Radner. It was something that she wore on her sleeves and it, essentially that when when people say she never cried out for help though. That was the cry for yeah. help. The, the cry for help was putting these issues she was having and the disorders that were unnamed yet into her comedy. It is a different form of crying out for help that I think that in the 70s and the 80s, they weren't really looking for just no. yet. You know, uh-huh. it's like, no, no, she's just funny. No, 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 she just makes yeah. the jokes about eating I mean, all the time when in reality, no one ever saw her eight. As you, as you will get into her childhood... Nobody knew what to do, including doctors with people struggling with mental health. They just put 
them on drugs and stuff. And oh, she's like, uh, put her out. in the crazy house. Uh, slap her in the crazy chair. Oh, no, she's got women's hysteria again. Oh, God, is she bleeding? Makes <laughs> sense. So let's get into uh, where this all came from. Born a goblin in Halloween Town. No, she Gilda Radner yearned to be a comedian on the stage, but she had to break the curse. But the curse, of course, was held by a witch. Oh my god, witch. fucking witch again! Always back again. Is this the pop history about my life? <laughs> I'm no, sorry, no. witch. She'll do what she has to do. I'm the witch. I've always been the witch. <laughs> I hate it, Natalie. Oh my God. I'm scared Why of you. We bring the witch in. I just <laughs> do this podcast. Oh, she's gone. Oh my Natalie, God, she disappeared. I don't want to scare you, but you were just filled with witch. And I think that we need to take <laughs> you to some sort of doctor. That sounds exciting. I'm yeah, not excited. Fill yeah, me up with witch. Fun. That sounds like my college years. Um, okay. <laughs> Let's actually go to sunny, sunny Detroit. Back when Detroit was actually a really nice place. I love the story of Detroit. Detroit was actually genuinely a fucking picture-perfect American town. And it is. Oh, I will add, Detroit is still very nice. It's I, on its I way love back Detroit. Up. Yeah. But it's had some hard times. Yeah. Are you talking about the packs of roving dogs that just sort of I love puppies. run rampant <laughs> on the streets? <laughs> puppies. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, she was born in Detroit to Jewish parents who both worked, a legal secretary and a businessman, and therefore she spent a lot of time with her nanny, Elizabeth Clementine Gillies, which, uh, who she called Dibby, who would later be the inspiration for her character, Emily Latella, but we'll get there later. And by the sounds of it, she has a nanny. She has working parents. She, she came was up well to do, fairly well to do, and was get and was from a very young age someone that wanted to perform. She says that she watched a lot of I Love Lucy and Charlie Chaplin movies and would act out versions of what she'd seen in her family's backyard. They had this sprawling estate too. If you see in Love Gilda, mm. they had a big, beautiful house. She was raised with loving. She adored her father. Now, before we get into her, another witch of a mother, <laughs> her father actually made their family fortune by purchasing an Ontario brewery he had purchased mm. in the late 1920s. Now, her mother, Henrietta, was an aspiring ballet dancer who essentially stopped her dreams to become a legal secretary. And I think that the ballet dancer part is very integral to the very strict rules she put on Gilda for what she could and could not eat. I also got from the documentary, it was never stated overtly, but the fam the the siblings all seemed to kind of say the mom she did work, but she also kind of was just doing other things a lot of the time. Yeah, they said in, in Love Gilda, they were like, the mom was just off doing whatever she was doing, which I was like, what is that? Like, it sounded like she didn't Maybe she wanted to be an artist or a performer and she kind of just then did this other thing and wasn't like fully there. Somehow checked out. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But she didn't seem to be. I mean, clearly they needed a nanny. They, they had a nanny that Gilda became incredibly close to, which means the nanny was around quite a lot. Well, and also the idea that in her childhood, in the summers, for four months out of her school year, they would move them down to Florida and just take them out of school, put them in Florida because her mother just didn't like the Detroit winters. Which is insane. You don't do yes. that to your kids. And yeah. that's why Radner said she always had trouble making close friends because mm. she wasn't around long enough. Not only that, imagine how disruptive that would be to like trying to learn anything where yeah. you're just like yeah. going to new schools every 
four or five months. Yeah, it sounds pretty rough and bizarre, but yes, that is exactly what they did. She also, by the way, I should mention, had an older brother named Michael. And this is, I mean, just immediately we get into her battle with eating disorders throughout her childhood and into her adulthood. Gilda said, I I coped with stress by having every possible eating disorder from the time I was nine years old. I have weighed as much as 160 pounds and as little as 93. When I was a kid, I overate constantly. My weight distressed my mother and she took me to a doctor who put me on Dexedrine diet pills when I was 10 years old. 10 amphetamines. Years old. Amphetamines. I had a... a friend in high school whose mother also put her on diet pills around the age of 13. But you know what we did? We took those diet pills, party. We put them up our nose. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, she didn't She didn't really lose any weight, but we all smiled. Yeah, a good, yeah, good uh-huh. time. I'm not supporting that. No. <laughs> I'm just saying, we, it was a, a, for us, it was a fuck you to her mother for trying to yeah. get her to lose weight like Please that. don't put your underage child on diet pills. Yes, or, psycho. I mean, honestly, any time in your life. No, any time in your life. Don't take diet pills. Not a healthy time to be on diet pills. Diet pills, though, of course, was such a norm back, back then. then. Like, yeah. oh, that's just the way you treat it. And uh, Gilda said, when I would come home crying because somebody called me fat at school, she would tell me. And the she and this is Dibby, by the way, her nanny. Yes. If they call you fat, just make a joke about it and laugh. I made them laugh before they hurt me. Before any kid could go, hey, you fat thing, I would say, hey, I'm fat. I can't see my toes. Which, <laughs> man, if there is a quote in here I I can identify with the most, it might be this one. Give it as, to us, Jackie. As someone that was, uh, oh, no, no, it's that. It's the fat part. It's the, it's oh, the being oh, fat. Oh, I thought it was this next quote. And then I realized what comedy is. It's hitting on the truth before. Or the other guy thinks of it, which I think is perfect. Yes, it is. It is the only it is a barrier. And I think that that's when we're talking about comedians being a, a community of broken toys. It is. Oh, it is a defense mechanism. Humor yeah. is unfortunately. It's not unfortunately. Fortunately. Yeah, it is the, one of the best defense mechanisms you can create within yourself. It was my shield. It still is my shield for sure. And and, you know, I feel like that's the natural journey, right? It starts as a defense mechanism and then once you start getting really good reactions to it, it becomes an addiction for the rest of your life. And at least it's a healthier addiction than most, but it's definitely an addiction. It's something that I struggled (laughs) with. And when I tried to do stand-up for a short amount of time, I realized that I was so scared of being on stage and being myself rather than hiding behind a character. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's something that, I mean, it's something you see in Gilda Radner that she, you Get to a point where you're just becoming a character, not only of yourself, but all of the other characters that you play, that you forget who you are and what uh-huh. you like and what you think because you're so busy having the shield up and donning the costume of being someone else that it's almost uncomfortable to be yourself. And mm-hmm. you feel like no one knows you anymore and that's why you push people away. I'm not going to start crying yet. <laughs> but I'm not going to lie to you guys. I'm on the precipice. Uh-oh. There's parallels here for sure. Uh, I could definitely see that. Uh, also, let's talk about her father. Uh. Her father operated Detroit's <laughs> Seville Hotel, which housed many performers passing through the city, which she was fascinated by. Also, when Broadway shows would come into town, he would take her to see them, and that really, really set her off. She absolutely, absolutely loved it. Up until the age of 12, though. Jackie, what happened 
When Gilda was 12? Well, she was very close to her father, and <laughs> her father developed a brain tumor. And the symptoms began so suddenly that he told people, he made a joke, he said, told people his eyeglasses were too tight. But within days, he was bedridden and unable to communicate and remained in that condition until his death two years later. If your question is, did she ever get to say goodbye? The answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) And she said about his death, the timing of his death arrested her. She says, I just never went into being a woman. Yeah, right. Which I mean, is a, in a funny way of just like, well, I guess I'm just going to be a kid for the rest of, of us, my life. Exactly. All of us have been stunted in some way where being an adult is a little hard for us. But I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. But like with the father, um, he also was an older father. because right. the, ah. uh, I don't think the mother was the same age as him, right? No, but yeah. he was in his 50s yeah. when he had Gilder. Yeah. Oh, okay. So when she he had Gilder, but you know what I mean. He wasn't. He wasn't old, old, but he wasn't a young man whenever right. she was growing up. Because he was the one that she would, when she would like put on all the different costumes and go out in the backyard and there's all these amazing home videos in the documentary. He was the one that would sit with her in the backyard and be her audience. He right. was the one that loved that she wanted to live life to the fullest. And she, it, those videos too are really interesting because you see her looking like a chubby little kid and she's cute, but it, it, shows you the drasticness of as an adult that that wiry thinness is not like a natural look for her it's like you can see that she actually has probably been struggling this whole time because some people are just naturally like wiry like that and it seems like she had to kind of force that and I I connect to that a lot because I had a lot of eating issues when I was younger so it's it's like painful to, to see her Never really. And knowing that that at that time period, too, that that's what's going in her mind is that I'm not good enough like this. I'm not good enough like this. I need to do drastic things to change how I look. I'm sure, too, you know, again, one of the things I learned eventually about, you know, bulimia and all these sorts of things is eating disorders largely, of course, and I'm sure a lot of our audiences is no new news, are based uh, around control. And I'm sure losing your father at the age of 12 like that is, is that being com- so completely out of your control and so devastating definitely feeds pun intended into Whoa. that. Whoa. I imagine also <laughs> her wanting her mom to pay more attention to her probably played a role in that where she her mother wanted her to be a, a skinny little bean and mm-hmm. so trying to please her mother probably in the back of her head played out for the rest of her life. Which is also kind of fun, like the mental issues, because my mom did the opposite of that. And yet still, (laughs) throw up, throw up, throw up, baby, man. (laughs) For so many years. Good Lord. (laughs) See, it's a defense mechanism. (laughs) Radner went to the University of Michigan after her traumatic childhood in 1964 (laughs) to get a degree in education, but also studied theater and improv for a bit. Now, this is when, I will say, this is a bit of a juicy nut for you to swallow, Jackie. Because I don't want to swallow s- it. What if I choke? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, was, I was talking about uh, semen. Oh, but, I was thinking but, of like, more of like a hazelnut. Oh, or, yeah. um, Why are those juicy? big ones, the macadamia nuts? Those are it's not a juicy nuts. nut because the guy in, in my theory is eating a bunch of pineapples and stuff the But day also before, this but, dude was fairly, um, he was a very beautiful man. So I get it. I'd drop out of college too. Well, see, what, I, what I was going to say though, as it being a juicy nut for you, this episode is romance after romance after romance. I mean, what a whirlwind of relationships. And she does attribute this to her father passing away too young. 
but she had so many and usually I'm a little more career focused when we do research Jackie's a little more personal life focused when we do research and so I feel like there was just so much here for you to drool over and this is the well first especially one. it's uh, and to I I had read it's always something when it came out which is her autobiography her autobiography yeah and it, it was something that I didn't even realize that I identified with even more, where it's the weird hand in hand of someone that not only is suffering from lots of mental issues, and um, I am diagnosed manic depressive, but I imagine that she probably would have been as well if it was something mm. that she was going to therapy or- Women's hysteria. Or, yes, women, excuse me, women's hysteria. But that it is a part of that, of going from man to man to man, to make yourself feel whole because you're right. not happy with yourself and you think mm -hmm. that you will find, if you just find the perfect partner, that you will, for the first time, be the the person you were supposed es to be. Especially back then when there wasn't a lot of resources and a lot of um, opportunities for women. That was sort of, you were more guided into a marriage being like, this will make you whole, do but this. I gotta say, what a love life. Yeah. Wowie mow, you all see? But I'm saying, Martin Short, Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> Bill Murray, are you fucking kidding me? And she said she couldn't even watch the movie Ghostbusters because there was always an ex-boyfriend on Harold the screen. And Harold Ramis, yeah, she said she dated Harold Ramis. I'd watch and be like, yeah, I got them all, woo! Yeah, that one, that one, that one. <laughs> Go get them all, girl. Except for Rick Moranis, which again, makes sense because she was never drawn to the man that probably would have treated her right Aww. until Gene Wilder. Right, until Gene, until Gene, of course. But even with Gene Wilder and- She and had to wrangle him. We go through the whole story, but he had to kind of work with her because I think a lot of the issues, I don't want to just blame her for why all these relationships didn't work out, but a lot of the issues, it seems time and time again, was she was just way too needy in these relationships. And again, I'm sure it. that's- Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> that's because- to the point where Gene Wilder even had to, like, the big breakthrough in their relationship was they were supposed to go on a trip together, but she had a sick dog she needed to take Sparkle. care of. And she just said to him, you know what, just go without me. And that was the first time where he was like, I think I can finally marry Gilda because she was actually able to be separate and not, you know, and not have this issue where she needed him uh, with her at all times, which I think is what was going on in these different relationships, which is part of the reason. Also, she was going after some, I'm just going to call them vagabonds. Whoa, yes, well, vagabond <laughs> is a very good way to describe them. Before before she started carousing with all of these comedians, she went to Canada, right? With the, sculpt the sculptor guy? Yes, yes. We, we sort of are jumping way ahead by talking about her relationships. But yes, this all starts with her getting together with a sculptor named Jeffrey Rubinoff at University of Michigan. She drops out of school her senior year and she just follows him thinking, in Toronto, I'll just do the housewife thing. She was ready to be a housewife. She was just going to give it all up. While he was sculpting. Yes. And she did. It's so weird. She was in her senior year of college and just didn't finish it. Like, you made it all the way to the end. Yeah, I know. it's always insane to me when people do that. But whatever. It's not like it really yeah, had sure, a whatever. drastic effect on her life. No. But either way... She definitely uh, was in that situation. I don't understand, and I've, I went I went through one of these relationships. I don't, and it's always the worst. And this is what it sounds like this was, where every time she would be funny and silly, he would be like not into it and shut it down. 
So she was Which, just why like, why would you want to be with someone that doesn't nourish who you actually I don't know. are? I think because she was young and she didn't know. Yeah, I mean, same with me. I was in my early 20s and didn't know better. And yeah. uh, she even said, I feel like it felt like there was a, just a part of me that or, or she said, quote, there was just a part of me that wasn't being used. And so she ends up getting away from him. She ends up first starting out. I didn't realize this till I was watching the doc. She first starts out in children's theater as like a ticket taker, which led to her being on stage. And apparently she ripped it up as a children's theater performer. Like, yes, they would just of course she would. put her center stage. She was still with him, right? At that point, like she was in Canada, but yeah, like sort so. of this branching away from him, looking for her own her own spark thing yeah. yeah i'm not sure do you i don't have exactly where they break off but i just know that you know she 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 goes to an audition for this hit musical i'm gonna assume they break off the morning she starts dating martin Short. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm gonna throw that out there that uh, i'm gonna guess that's what happens it's funny that i always assumed she was canadian because of SCTV because and everything. she was with all the Canadian guys. Yeah, but it was she was only there because she was dating a sculptor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. And also, though, I, that makes sense because I think just from her being in Toronto for so long, her accent is a li- has a little bit of Canadian. Yeah, well, and also they were saying I don't. I think it was in this doc that they were saying that Toronto at this time was a hubbub of especially comedy it was it was really starting to boom at this point in time that it was one of the bigger cities then that was uh, akin to a new york or an la it wasn't as much but it was closer than it is now i know that the i know that there's a lot of shooting that happens in toronto toronto is still a hub of entertainment creation for sure and it is still a has a huge comedy community same as with chicago as you'll see with sctv and the connections that they have there so she just happened to fall right into the epicenter of of the creation of some of the best comedy that has ever existed listening to your favorite podcast that's smart Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University, that's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And and to lead up to that, this legendary cast for the musical Nuts. Godspell. Crazy. Godspell is a hippie version of the Bible th- that is also based around clowning that originated at Carnegie Mellon University in 1970 as uh, essentially as the the writer's thesis project. It ends up going uh, off Broadway at NYC. It goes to Australia. It goes to London, and then it goes to Toronto. She shows up at the audition and she gets on stage and with not really much singing ability, 
just launches into zippity doo dah. So Martin Short had said, I found this awesome interview with Martin Short about this time. And he had said, when asked, why did she sing zippity doo dah? So she sang zippity doo dah in giant bib overalls and her hair was in two ponytails. And Martin Short says, Gilda later explained to me that she had actually seen the off Broadway production of Godspell in New York. And therefore, she knew exactly what Schwartz was looking for a certain looseness, an emphasis. Uh, an emphatic lack of Broadway polish. But believe me, advanced knowledge alone did not account for the way this talented girl took control of that room. Mm, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it was so funny too, in other interviews, Short was like, she got on stage singing Zippity Doo, and I was like, oh God. Yeah, like, yeah uh, no, 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 no. Terrible <laughs> Short. And then just, or a terrible choice, and then just, just took, just with her physicality, with her just light, and sheer joy that she has in her just took the whole room by charge. So she gets cast in this production, and this is her big launching pad. There is a ton of Canadian talent. I mean, it's launching pad for everybody. Victor Garber, Eugene Levy, Andrea Martin, Dave Thomas, Martin Short, and the show's musical director was, of course, Paul Schaefer. Eugene Levy said, the first image of Gilda was at the final audition for Godspell. We were all there. They narrowed it down to about 80 people. I just remember this girl getting up on stage and singing Zippity Doodah as her song. I remember thinking, oh, this poor girl, she's so cute, but what a terrible song. And the entire room by the end of the song just fell in love with her. She was so adorable. We always referred to her as the Zippity Doodah girl in the beginning. She was charming and sweet and loved to laugh. She went out with Marty Short for most of the run, and Marty was my roommate. So we were all hanging out. I just remember her always being up and loving to laugh. Uh, Martin Short said, I adored Gilda. She was probably the first big love of my life. She was also just filled with a lot of joy and laughter. I thought that this was actually a very fun um, little story from Martin Short. Something that he kept saying again and again is that he had never met a woman so comfortable in her strangeness. He said that they had had a big cast party for everyone to get to know each other after they got in. And he said, the way she walked into a room filled it, both with her big personality and the bags she encumbered herself with. Gilda typically carried two bags, (laughs) ones that she'd knitted herself. The bigger one contained her knitting materials and personal effects. The smaller one, more like a little pouch, contained her bingo chips and cards. (laughs) Gilda loved her bingo and indulged in it with the zeal of a retiree, bundling off to bingo halls whenever she could get her fix, sitting among all the old folks and smoking her Virginia Slim cigarettes. Her great pride was that she could keep 18 bingo cards going at once, her mind (laughs) agile enough to maintain her grids no matter how fast the caller barked out the numbers. It's like she had a retro hipster pastime before retro or hipsters existed. (laughs) And isn't that great because she didn't care what... She didn't, except for on the inside, but on the outside, she didn't give a fuck what anybody thought about her. She was there to have fun. She also, I love too that Martin Short and Eugene Levy's house during the run was the party house. Yeah, made me think of the Murderfist house. I know, it really did. Like, it really, it was, it's really um, striking to watch that documentary and see the photos of all of those guys hanging out together because as, at our age group, we grew up with them just being these giants our whole lives. And yeah. they were kids. You get to yeah. see them be kids that look like you and your friends when they were making stuff, you know? It's it's always just so exciting and amazing when 
all of those people are together in a production well before they got big. And, uh, you know, how exciting that is because that that's magic. I mean, for the most part, everybody does different productions separately and then they get cast in a thing and then they're in the big thing together. But to see them all in this still, you know, Godspell, was, you know, it's a pretty big deal in Toronto at the time. But still, I mean... Just, just so well before all of their times. Yes, so. and when you meet someone that is this electric, Martin Short also said she had this attractiveness to everyone. Women wanted to have her as her best friend, and men wanted to take her out. She was funny and original. She was vulnerable. No one had met anyone like Gilda. So after Godspell, Radner ends up going to the Second City, Toronto. The, right when it opened in 1973, it was that the that wing of it is originated in Chicago and performed in the first three reviews the theater put on alongside cast members Dan Aykroyd, Catherine O'Hara, Joe Flaherty, and John Candy. Man, those in also in the doc, John Candy was hot as. He's really cute. <laughs> Wowie, Mowie. I mean, I yeah. I mean, I'll always. And forever have obviously it's John Candy, but the 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 pictures of him young and on stage, yeah, I take you hit it, I take some, get some of that candy. <laughs> Even just myself thinking back at our time at UCB and the pit, it's like there was so many people that passed through that never amounted to anything. The fact that this was the original crew of Second City is so just astounding these names are so big also get the dvds of sctv you yes. will thank me for it it is i it is still a dvd set that i will still put on every once in a while so this is where she starts developing her character emily latella the elderly woman with a hearing problem just like her dibby had the nanny this would end up appearing in snl's weekend update segment 26 times but before that this is also where she gets her first taste of sexism in the comedy game gilda said the guys would want to work together and the girls would say okay let's do this idea this way then the girls would realize they needed somebody to serve the coffee in the scene well that's the thing and it's just jane Curtin had said there were a few people who just out and out believed that women should not have been there and that women were not innately funny I mean, not a shocker to me just because we have recently that was like a, a, a air quotes I'm using debate on like social media, you know, th- it that was like happens, one of the fir- yeah. yeah, it's still that was one of the first big like comedy online, big comedy splashy debates that you would see like on Twitter. And it was such a weird one where it's like, what? What do you? <laughs> <laughs> Why is People this still really believe a thing? This? How is this possibly still a thing? When you go to the deep south and encounter a person that's super racist, you're like, oh, Why? oh you're right. like, oh, this what? is still this still happens. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I can't believe it. Jesus, it's such a bizarre thought. So of course this was like way more cemented back then, and this is also the time that she and Dan Aykroyd were a couple for quite a little bit. Very fun. Couldn't find anything about the two of them dating, though. He said, uh, all I've read about... Oh, no, I meant the fact that she wasn't talking about it. I can't imagine they had a great time. Ackroyd said, you know, they were friends, then they became lovers, and then eventually friends again all through the time between here and SNL, and that at least they were very much so able to patch things up and maintain a friendship while, while working together on SNL. I think that was the same with Bill Murray, right? I don't yes. think they really patched it up. Her and Bill, yeah. well, well, we'll get to a sweet well, yeah. moment near the end of her life that that says that they were they definitely patched things up enough. But her and Bill had a bit more of a tumultuous relationship yeah. that we'll get into when we get to SNL. They weren't together during this time. Oh, okay, that was more okay. of an SNL thing. 
but uh, she then joined folks like John Belushi, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, and Chevy, Ch- Chevy Chase on the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which aired for 13 months in 1973 and 1974, followed by a series of albums. Belushi just called her on the phone and said, it's John Belushi, do you want to be the girl in the show? And that, of course, is no exaggeration. I don't understand. I've never felt that before in my entire (laughs) life. Now, Gilda had actually become fast friends with the writer and director of the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which I think is interesting because a lot of those dudes had issues. Never Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis is perfect in every single way. I love Uh, him. It was interesting that one of the writer-directors of the National Lampoon Radio Hour was a woman, Janice Hirsch, in 1973. She describes Radner as so delightful and so sweet and so funny, but she also notes that her eyes were always sad. She had the saddest eyes and the happiest smile. You just wanted to make her less sad. I think that's also what made people want to take care of her. And I think that that is something that she was always searching for. She was searching for someone to take care of her. She was searching for a father figure. She was searching for a Jackie, mother no. figure. She was searching no, for someone. Uh-oh. I'm not going to cry yet. Yeah, <laughs> we're so far away from the cry part. This is the happy part. All of part. it is sad. Yeah. It's happy. To, she's doing so well. She got on the big, look, she got on the big TV. I know, she gets on the pig, pig TV. The pig, the pig TV. I didn't Jackie, think just a Freudian slip because you're having weight things going on right now. And I need you to get away from TV. that. Okay, I'll make you laugh. Look at me. It's the silly hands man. <laughs> oh, that's scary. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was that? Now I'm frightening Natalie. All right, let me try to go on something else. Oh, 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 These are the noises I make when I'm excited in the bedroom. You look like a webcam girl. <laughs> sorry. I don't know how to make people happy today. No, you're doing a very doing good, a good job. job you're not being a John Belushi about this. Whoa. I hate the... I hate, I love and I hate it because at the same time, I'm happy that this stuff has been outed. A lot of, I dug deep into, because one of my, my favorite books on comedy is Live from New York, the Saturday Night Live oral history. I think it just, it's got, oh God, it's so good. It was so much fun to jump back into it. That's why I wanted to do an episode just on SNL, but it's like, you know what? (sighs) Just read that book. That book is so good. Yeah, it's just so perfect. And I pulled a lot from that book. It is so comprehensive and so amazing. And uh, shout outs to my lovely wife who went and hunted down a first edition of it for me because it's actually quite hard to find Aww, like a good, nice hardback of that. And she got that for me for my birthday. So was, was that better one. or worse than the Purple Rain album that you bought for your brother for Christmas? So I got my brother this really fancy <laughs> box set of Purple Rain for Christmas. I also got him a Nintendo Mini and a Super Nintendo Mini. Just yeah, but for, how like, small is it, Holden? Can he even play the games? It's such a small box, it's tinier than yours, Jackie. Oh my god! <laughs> and mine's very tiny. So tight. <laughs> yeah, it's, t- it's a, my tight Nintendo. Um, Alright, can we please be human beings for a millisecond? Uh, Alright, Radner was the very, I love this, Gilda Radner, very first person hired by Lord Michaels to be a part of the sketch team, the Not Ready for Primetime Players in 1975 that would appear in a new show called Saturday Night Live. Now, why would they be called the Not Ready for Primetime Players? That's uh, largely because Saturday Night Live was like not primarily a sketch show when it started. In fact, it was all over the place. If you go out of curiosity and pick up, I remember when the first season DVDs hit and all the people in the comedy community, like many different people picked that up. And I remember throwing that on and just being like, what, what was is this happening? show? Because they didn't know yet. Two. 
They didn't know. There was like an entire show that was just Paul, uh, pretty much just a Paul Simon concert with like one sketch in it. <laughs> there was so many weird things about the first season. It was, and there were like short films. The Muppets were on, or not the Muppets, but Jim Henson's had a version of Muppets on it. It was so all over It was over like the place. sort of like a variety show a little yeah. bit. Yes. It was much more was like a laughing kind of it was like anti laughing but still very much a variety Ooh, we do a show. A laughing episode. Oh, but that's Ooh, sorry. That'd be fine. Right? Okay, so so anyways, but but she was also the large largely the reason why Lauren, who was reluctant at first finally hired John Belushi, one of the last people to join, which is uh, odd only because Belushi seemed to have a total disdain for female comedic performers, but for some reason they got on. A lot of that, I saw some quote uh, from Gilda saying, they loved me because I would just laugh and laugh and laugh at everything they said and did until tears were rolling down my face and that she was, Well, and know. also it's because she never fought them on being the yeah. girl in the group. It right. was something that, she embraced. It was something that she's like, all right, fine. That I, if I'm going to roll with the boys, I'm going to do whatever I can do, but then I'm going to be the best at it. So I'm not going to pin them against the wall because they want me to be the girl in this. I'm going to embrace it and run with it then. Totally. And I'm going to be the best comedian that you could see because John Belushi would say things like how women weren't, were just fundamentally not funny. And apparently he also didn't like to be in sketches with women. Yes. He told Jane Curtin that women were written by women and Chevy Chase said it as well and Mm -hmm. Jane Curtin says I just found it stunning yeah and 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 I totally get how that could be obviously very um stressful and make you a little bit aggressive in like the feminist standpoint like maybe like the way Jane Curtin handled it that seems completely plausible but I think the way Gilda Radner handled it made it so that they she almost tricked them into understanding that women can like do cool shit just and by like not, going yes. along with it and not just it wasn't that she was talking about having the being a wife and having kids or oh i bleed once a month that is you look at all of her characters and in fact the the most like fee, like her fee, her characters are so based in being strong women but it's all across the board yeah. of what she did. I also right. think the fact that she lo- allowed herself to be so silly yes. also um, helped them accept her more where it wasn't, she wasn't playing stereotypical feminine parts, but she also wasn't fighting against, she wasn't fighting like quote unquote as a feminist. She was just being silly. No, she was a human yeah. Muppet. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she it seemed to ne- rarely get angry or almost never get angry. Yeah come off angry but uh all right story time story time so this is all from alan zweibel and alan zweibel worked uh worked with gilda radner on snl from 1977 to 1979 he was someone that would sit with her he said in the doc he said they would just go to coffee shops with a pen and paper and just start vomiting out ideas for characters and just writing shit down and he helped create emily latella and roseanne rosanna dana with her and i love the way they met and that's why i say story time this is a little bit of a settle in for it situation but here we go from alan zweibel himself The first day in Lauren's office, and it's God's honest truth, I was really intimidated by what was going on in this room. There was Danny, Dan Aykroyd, O'Donohue, Michael O'Donohue, who was like a huge, huge part of the staff, and Belushi and stuff like that. And in the corner of Lauren's office was this potted plant. And I hid behind it. I actually squatted down because Lauren was now going around asking people their ideas and I couldn't compete with this. So I'm here and I'm hiding when all of a sudden (laughs) through the leaves, I hear someone say, Can you help me be a parakeet? 
So I parted the leaves and it was Gilda. I go, what? She said, I have this idea where I get dressed up like a parakeet and I'm on a perch, but I need a writer to help me figure out what the parakeet should say. Can you help me? I had no idea what she was talking about, but she was a human being, but she was a human being calling me a writer. So I go, oh yeah, I'm great at parakeet stuff. <laughs> and she said, why are you behind there? You're scared, aren't you? You look, just look at this room. It's pretty intimidating. All this talent that's here. And so that's why you're here because you're scared. I said, yeah. She said, I am too. Can I come back? And she came behind the plant with me. So now we're both behind this plant and we get to talking and all of a sudden she says, uh-oh, he's calling on you. This is about five minutes later and I get tongue-tied, you know, one of those things. Lauren's going, Alan, is Alan in here? She says, I'll take care of it. She gets up, goes around the plant to the front of the room and she says, Zweibel's got this great idea where I played this parakeet and I sit on a perch. So she attributed her idea to me and I went, wow, I got up enough nerve to come out from behind the plant and Gilda said, wait a second, He's also got this funny, funny idea where I, I also play Howdy Doody's wife, Debbie Doody, and we're going to write this and all sorts of stuff. She said, like a team. That's how I found out that I was going to be teamed up with Gilda. She just took pity on this puppy behind the plant. Aww. Oh, I love it. And the, just to find someone that you can immediately connect with and write with, and especially these characters, that they're all parts of her personality. They're all a part of her, and being able to share in that experience with someone, you have to have a great connection to be paired up with a writer like that. Also, I will say, maybe, I don't know if she had the foresight of this, but smart strategy. Because you're going to go meet up with a guy that'll give you, therefore, the dumb... The male need, unfortunately. Yeah, the dumb need that these other um, uh, uh, sexists need, right? To have a guy involved in the writing. But the guy that's scared, that's not going to be like a macho dickhead to you, that's going to work with you. So it's like two birds with one stone, right? And that's why he had said about her... She reached through the TV Two screen. Two parakeets with one stone. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> she reached through the TV screen and drew you in. He said, she was very revealing about herself. She displayed her vulnerabilities. She wasn't just someone putting on a Roseanne, Rosanna Dana wig. It wasn't just somebody being Candy Slice or Emily Latella. It was Gilda. You felt like you knew the person who was doing it. It was an emotional investment for her. I should also say Rosie Schuster, another staff writer, worked with her on these different sketches with Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, Emily Tella, Baba Wawa, uh, all, a lot of that stuff too. Rosie loved how she would just explode on the stage. She said she watched every one of her live performances instead. Also, apparently Barbara Walters said about Baba Wawa, she had stated <laughs> in an interview that Radner was the first person to make fun of news anchors. Now it's done all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Rosie said about her on stage, I loved it so much. And it just didn't seem like it had been done the same way at dress or even, you know, a couple times before. It just seemed so amazingly live and raw. And she would do anything. She even talked about, and I think, again, this comes from childhood need for the laugh, for attention, that if something wasn't working, she would just do anything to get the laugh. The best example from the documentary is her Debbie Doody bit, <laughs> where she comes on, no one's laughing, she's supposed to be, uh, Howdy Doody just died, she's supposed to come on and uh, do an interview with this news person, no one's really laughing, so she literally just starts, like, jumping on Lorraine Newman, who's playing the reporter, and just, just, just like, with these wires and stuff she's just like 
throwing herself at Lorraine Newman. Lorraine starts laughing. So the audience funny. just goes crazy, crazy. And I'm going crazy sitting there watching it at home as if it's happening for the first time just, you know, a few nights ago. I mean, it was brilliant. You weren't even born then. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> well, not only was Gilda one of the first people to make fun of news anchors on the screen, on the TV, she was also the first person to say the word bitch on national television. So by this time, the Emily Latella bit was getting a bit played. She'd go on, she'd she'd defend violence on television, and it would be, no, it's violence. Oh, never mind. And you know, presidential, <laughs> what was it? The uh, presidential erection. Erection, yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, after you do it a couple times, they even said it was essentially like a pity laugh or, or, or just an obligatory laugh at the end of that bit after a while. So... Zweibel said, and now the laugh at Nevermind was obligatory, and we wanted to get rid of it. So I wrote this Jane thing. Jane Curtin was the news anchor by that point, replacing Chevy Chase, where she says to Gilda, you know, every week you come on and you get it wrong and you're disgusting. You're an insult to the integrity of journalism and to the human beings and to human beings worldwide. Am I making myself clear? I don't want to see you anymore. And I had Gilda say back to her, crystal clear. She took a beat and went, bitch <laughs> now this is now this is 1977 okay we do it in the dress rehearsal and the place goes nuts because bitch on television was groundbreaking however the censors immediately go up to Zweibel and tell him he can't do that but Zweibel convinces her that this is not a noun it's an adverb and at that time people were able to say that someone was being bitchy, bitchy. and this was just the adverb uh, instead of the noun and then the censor was like well I guess if it's the I adverb guess. then I guess it's works so the censor <laughs> bought it and she was able to have the honor to do it and of course the whole place goes crazy because again late 70s definitely not a thing that was said on television at that point so it was a huge huge moment it was in the documentary too it's so fun it's around this time bill murray joins the snl cast in its second season to replace chevy chase and he and gilda have a relationship for a while, a very contentious relationship. And you could even see in the characters that they play on screen that they definitely brought a lot of their interpersonal problems into SNL and into their characters. Especially the nerds. Uh, yes, Lisa I love the Lupner nerds. I love them. And Todd DeLamuca, who, you know, he'd give her noogies and they'd always be messing with each other and stuff. And it was a bit of a mirror. She's so cute in those, mm -hmm, man. Mm -hmm. She was so freaking cute. Uh, Rosie said, Todd and Lisa also became a medium for Gilda and Billy to work something through on television. There was definitely some of that going on. They went through different permutations where they were together and they weren't together, you know. You could probably track what was going on by seeing how they related to each other on the air. So this is at a time period, too, when everything is just gaining traction and they're just becoming more and more famous. But they even say, too, that they were all working so much that they didn't even realize how famous they were becoming at this time period because they're all working their asses off. Right. So on top of it, you have this very contentious relationship that you don't even have the time yeah, to like, fight. Yeah, like I don't other even places. I don't even know that they could have had like a genuine normal relationship because their entire world re revolved around the work of that show. Yes, but although that work did give her an Emmy that she won at this point in time mm -hmm. for out, she won the Emmy in 1978 for outstanding continuing or single performance by a supporting actress in Variety 
or music. And she didn't even realize what she was becoming and how inspirational she was for and what she was going to be, too. Man, I feel like this never would have flown on SNL today. Lorraine Newman's quote here is, Billy and Gilda's relationship didn't really affect me, except that I can remember them coming to read through and fighting. And she was furious with him. And she just told him not to talk to her and he'd be begging her. And this would be acted out in front of all of us. Everybody. Yikes. Well, also, I think it was her co-writer said at one point she was one of three people in that crew who did did not do cocaine. Yeah. 24-7. So I think that probably also... Um, Played a lot of the drama Tons. out. I, I mean, yeah, not I, you know, so much can be said about the early years of SNL. I mean, they talked about how the elevator would open and a cl- clouds of weed smoke would just fill the elevator <laughs> with all these network executives. That that entire floor was a, like a jungle, a different beast than the <laughs> rest of the building. Like they were the rebels of. The network. And they I feel like they just for some reason I just feel like they were stinky. Oh yeah. I mean everybody was stinky back then. Yeah. And they were before ready. deodorant was invented. They oh, weren't yeah, ready for how how big and famous they were about to come. And Gilda Radner also goes to say Celebrity and success doesn't quite go with comedy because there's something about being an underdog and a voyeur that makes comedy possible. So how do you keep looking at everything going on while everybody's looking at you and make that fun? It's so true. And also, it, I think it's trickier for comedians to continue to be funny to, because you need to relate to people. The more successful you get and the more alienated from regular society you get and the more money you have... I know it's so hard for them whenever they get to that point. (laughs) But um, as someone that has so many issues with herself, and you can, I think that she never expected to be famous and didn't really know how to deal with it. And she says, there was a time at the height of Saturday Night Live when I couldn't even walk down the street in New York because every single person recognized me. It got so that I didn't even go out because of that kind of attention. Now I'm someone people shout, hey, you move at in the parking lot of a hospital. This was later on when she, how quickly she quote unquote wasn't famous anymore. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, talent coordinator Neil Levy, by the way, had this to say, which I think goes back to what you were talking about by, about bipolar. Uh, he he had a, a, an interesting quote here. Uh, there was a profound sadness inside Gilda. At the same time, there was this boundless joy and energy. She fluctuated. It wasn't like bipolar. She didn't go on periods of horrible depression and then elation. They existed side by side, and sometimes Oof. she'd just disappear. She would just go away, and maybe that's when she was sad. Yikes. She was also, I think, obsessed with just having stability during this time of turmoil, and I think this is a really sad but sweet anecdote about that. Radner would often um, 
go to Jane Curtin's house literally to watch them like they were in a zoo be a married couple. Jane Curtin said, I'd invite her over for dinner. She'd come and sort of sit there while I was cooking. My husband would be there and she wouldn't participate, wouldn't carry on a conversation. She just watched and wanted to watch us lie, uh, live up. And she wouldn't participate, wouldn't carry on a conversation. She just wanted to watch us live. It was off-putting in the beginning, but after a while, it got to be very funny. You know, it was Gilda, so it was okay. She Again, would even she's do okay with like, her strangeness. Yeah. She would even, they would like go to watch a movie and she'd be like, ooh, interesting. What are you two going to decide on? You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. was like. <laughs> That'd she be fun if she, it. That would be fun if they watched a movie and she faced them behind the screen and just watched them watch the movie. That'd be fun. Yes. Wouldn't that be funny, <laughs> you guys? And then the woman who had said, my comedy was just to make things all right, which we had said earlier, now admitted pretending everything was all right got harder. So while she's doing this and she's trying to watch other people live their lives, she wants a, a true, a good relationship. She wants to have a family. But this is around the time that she is hospitalized for her eating disorder in 1978. Yes. The, so essentially it seems like the diet pill era was her childhood. That was more the anorexia era. And that turns into bulimia. While she's on SNL. Even sometimes, apparently, she would invite SNL cast member Lorraine Newman over to apartment. And Lorraine Newman says, while Radner would binge and purge, Newman would snort heroin. She says, there we were, practicing our illnesses together. She was still funny throughout it all. Uh, Lorraine Newman also said she was very open about it, not covert, which I always thought was typical of people with that illness. They're usually very hidden. But she was so funny about it because she would really announce it to us. And people have been talked about... It wasn't something that was talked about a lot. People in the documentary, they even said, we didn't even know the word bulimia at that point. In fact, many people treated it like, wow, this is Gilda's brilliant idea, her like brilliant solution. That's what SNL writer Marilyn Suzanne Miller said about it. She's like, we thought that it was a brilliant idea Gilda had brought up. Nobody said it was a disease. We just thought it was a great idea, essentially to just eat and get rid of it. Well, yeah, I mean, like especially with acting back then, the actresses were push to do horrible things to look a certain mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And it was just acceptable. And just the fame coming out of nowhere again, because they didn't expect this. She wrote in her journal, my picture's in the newspaper, but my body's in the garbage. And she just couldn't cope with seeing, like having her image everywhere, I think, and with mixed with all these issues. So while SNL is on hiatus in the summer of 1978, she checks herself into the New England Baptist Hospital in Boston, where the doctors imposed a strict 1,200 calorie per day diet to get weight back on her body, which when Lexi saw that, she was like, that's like a diet amount of calories. Well, yeah, I think I think that maybe if it's because at that point, if you have an she eating disorder, so thin. Yeah, yeah, that it it's really hard to mentally to have a full amount of calories. So sometimes they'll start easing you back in. Yeah. Right. yeah 1200 is not very much. No. Gilda wrote, I weigh 140, 104 pounds and I think I'm fat. I want to learn how to eat normally again. And then perhaps to love normally and accept being loved. And her SNL performances would also uh, play into her issues. Again, this is another way that she was crying out because in one skit, she sang a song called Goodbye Saccharin about how she would rather eat carcinogenic sweeteners than sugar because her fear of getting fat was marginally greater. <laughs> they also did the What Gilda Ate segment to Which fill time is, if they needed a few what moments. What a nightmare. Just to fill time, they would put, Lauren Michaels would put her out on stage and they and she would still make it funny. It was just, just What was Gilda so funny. Ate. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So she gets back to NYC later that summer writing, I am almost ready to tell food jokes again. 
she she goes back to SNL. She's she's doing that for an, about another year. And in the meantime, she's also in 1979. Uh, she gets her own show on Broadway called Gilda Radner Live from New York, which runs for 52 performances. Which was her dream. She wanted to be on Broadway. Directed by Lorne Michaels with Paul Schaefer playing the music. And it essentially allowed her to do stuff that was too racy for TV and therefore SNL. The prime example of this being the song Let's Talk Dirty to the Animals, which is very funny. And it is what got the film that would come out later in R rating. She sings, fuck you, Mr. Bunny, eat shit, Mr. Bear, tell that chicken, suck my dick, and give him chicken pox. It's very funny. <laughs> when she was asked why she decided to write and perform this one-woman show, she responded, I don't know why I'm doing it, except for, for some reason, I've chosen to scare myself to death. It feels like for years, for my whole life, I was packing my suitcase with all this stuff. Now it's time to go. I might get chills and pass out on the first laugh, and that'll be it. Finally, I'll be getting enough attention. <laughs> Finally. Yay, we did it. But it was fascinating to see her say at the end of all of that that she didn't actually, re she realized that's not what she wanted. She didn't want to be the star of her own show. She just wanted to have fun and be characters and create and do things and didn't necessarily want to be the absolute focal point. She liked being in an ensemble more. I think so. I think so. Yeah. The uh, the live the Gilda Live uh, filmed version you can get really easily. Yes. Um, I think I yes. found it on YouTube for like two dollars. She's something. amazing. I yeah. I do love this quote about that. She says, "I can always be distracted by love, but eventually I get horny for my creativity," <laughs> <laughs> which I get. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and in the show, she does Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, Emily Latella, Candy Slice, which was her parody of Patti Smith, Judy Miller which was is her energetic little girl character, Lisa Lupiner, the nerd, Nadia Komenechi, uh, the I believe that is the gymnast, mm. and Rhonda Weiss, the model for Jewish jeans, which is a hilarious <laughs> SNL sketch. And uh, unfortunately, that film and album were released in 1980, and they both flopped, which I, I don't understand because it's such a sweet... It's such a sweet show. Uh, maybe it was just uh, kind of weird to go to the theater to see a one-woman show. Yeah, um, I think maybe there just wasn't a lot of precedent for at it. At that yeah. point in time. But what she definitely was was carving herself a marriage out of nowhere when she got married to the lead guitarist of her Broadway show, G.E. Smith. Which is the SNL guy yes. in the 90s. Yes, yes, yes. He was yeah, the guy yeah, totally. the striped jacket on yeah he's the musical yes. director of snl and lorraine newman said i think that was her version of a walk on the wild side because they were so different and jane Curtin said i didn't even know they were dating everyone was surprised it's really cute to see her as patty smith or as candy slice parodying patty smith. she like jumps on his back he's like rocking out on the guitar Which is and great you know that's probably like the only clip they have of evidence that they were an item. And even though it flopped, she did say that she did this show for her father. She mm. says, it's stuff like this show that truly makes me think of my dad. I'm get, I'm keeping him alive. He owned a hotel and all the roadshow companies used to stay there when they came to Detroit. From the time I was a little girl, I got the best seats at the theater. I always wanted to be a chorus dancer in Broadway musicals because they look so happy. I always thought they were looking at me. So this is also near the end of her reign on SNL. She, along with pretty everyone, 
leaves. Uh, the, her last episode was May 24th, 1980. This was this big changeover time. During Guild Alive, there was a ton of backstage turmoil going on with Lauren, NBC, and the staff of SNL. Aykroyd, everybody's getting a little too big. Aykroyd goes off to film Blues Brothers with Belushi. The rest of the cast was burnt out. Lauren desperately wanted to take a year off. Also, at the time, president of NBC, Fred Silverman, was getting pissed off because the show, uh, especially with the, after Al Franken did a sketch lambasting him, there's just a lot of weird turmoil, and so everyone walks away for They kind of go their separate year. ways. Which is natural, I think, you know? Yeah, okay. and yeah. So, so she doesn't know what to do with herself at this point, and she's like, well, I want to act, I want to, you know, I want to be silly, so she tries her hand as, at being in the big picture shows. Whoa. And it's the natural either TV or film for people leaving SNL. But so who she, does she meet? Who does she hubba, meet? Hubba. Dom DeLuise. Well, oh. I mean, eventually, yes. <laughs> oh, but, but also Gene Wilder. The she doesn't love of her kiss life. Dom DeLuise no. in the mouth. <laughs> Yes, she meets Gene Wilder in 1981. They are co-stars in the set of a film called Hanky Panky, directed by Sidney Poitier. It is a road trip film centered around Wilder's character being on the run for a crime he didn't commit and Radner's character searching for her brother's killer. Wilder approached her to introduce himself, and as he, as he wrote in his book, Kiss Me Like a Stranger... Gilda said that I rubbed my crotch against her knee when I asked her if I could bring her some tea or coffee. When she told me the story, I said, you're nuts. And she said, no, they were your nuts. <laughs> I love it. Um, but I will say, unfortunately, she was still married to G.E. Smith at this yes, point in time. Yes, of course. Uh, and uh, Radner wrote in her book, my heart fluttered. I was hooked. I felt like my life went from black and white to technicolor. On set, there was a chemistry that was palpable and an electricity in the air. Radner's friend Pam Katz told People they hadn't been together yet, but there was no chance that they weren't going to be. They do seem, I don't know if it's because we see them as a couple on screen, but they seem like the perfect like they seem like they fit together like puzzle pieces you yes know? and apparently oh God, uh, yes. Gilda had written that around Wilder this brash and feisty comedian turned into this shy demure ingenue with knocking knees because looking because <laughs> at this point Gene Wilder's huge right at this time yes. it's right after Blazing Saddles it's after Willy, Willy Wonka, Wonka. You know, it's, it's he's a huge movie star and he's also a good deal older than her and had been divorced what, three or four times before this? Mm-hmm. I think it was the Willy Wonka that did it for her. I kind of find that <laughs> character sexy. Is that weird? No, not I at all. I think a lot of people find that character okay. yeah. sexy. Okay. But what Gene Wilder said about the first time meeting her is that she was always funny and she loved doing what she was doing. She made fun of me because I didn't know who SNL character Roseanne Rosanna Dana was, and she laughed. She said, you never saw my... And then she made me see every single one of the sketches she had done. So I love that, too, when she's like, oh, you didn't see my... Well, then you're going to sit and you're going to watch him. Let's watch him. Let's watch him. So it took two weeks before Gilda finally threw Wilder on his hotel room bed and said, I have a plan for fun. But Wilder turned her down because, of course, she was still married to G. Smith. So the next day, she told him she knew she would be leaving her husband for him. Wilder said, Gilda... You're talking like this is a fairy tale and you're going to meet Prince Charming and everything's going to be all right and we'll both live happily ever after. To which she responded, so what's wrong with that? (laughs) (laughs) And and I bring back up the tale of, you know, they did have issues though for a while. And again, it was, he largely attributed it to her neediness. And And he didn't want to get married again. And she was like, I, she even said, I made it my career 
to be his wife. (laughs) (laughs) And so she fought really hard for it, but also worked really hard. And it was that moment that he, they were going to go on this trip and she said, you know what, just go without me. That he realized like, oh, she's, she's figured it out. She's, she's gotten into the headspace that we can totally be together for the rest of our lives. Right. And so it was that they get married while they were, it was right after the release of their film, The Woman in Red, which is a great movie, by the way. I don't Please actually think I've seen that movie. It's, it's the two of them. To, it's just, that's why I hate that Haunted Honeymoon gets such a bad rap. I know. Yeah. I love watching the two of them together. Definitely. Totally. And so Wilder and Radner flew to France together and wed in a private ceremony. Sparkle the dog was in attendance and he had said, I wanted candlelight, she fluorescent. We were temperamentally wrong for each other and divinely right. Aww. And also um, uh, that this was 1984 when this happened. Let's get into the sad stuff. Let's talk about She wanted it. to have a baby with him. <laughs> she wanted so, to have a baby with him. And she said that oh she said God. the hair alone would make people squeal with delight. Of <laughs> She had a baby with him. Yeah, I know she said that. And then she wants she a baby, was, but she can't have the baby. They were oh. struggling to have a child. She can't have the baby. She said, for me, the issue became less whether I wanted a baby or not and more my... Ni- my inability to accept not being able to have one. She has an. Uh, uh, she has a procedure done. Uh, she to to assess the function of her fallopian tubes, and it showed that she was infertile. Then they did one cycle of in vitro fertilization, which was brutal for both of them. And after no pregnancy happened from it, Wilder said no to another round of it after that in fact she had said about the uh, fallopian tube when they put the dye through her fallopian tubes to see if they were functioning she said I saw the dye running through my reproductive system on a closed circuit screen in the examining room there I was lying on a table with my legs spread apart watching the worst show I'd ever seen on television the show was called my tubes were closed I didn't even know they did IVF back then. Yeah, Yeah. but I don't think... I I bet it it wasn't that. It wasn't wasn't very easy either. And uh, this is something that now we will see in this decline of her health is that she was still desperately had this shield up of at least I can still be funny. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, And so after... She also has a risky surgery done to have her test tubes opened, but this also showed no results. Meanwhile... Gene Wilder writes, directs, and stars in Haunted Honeymoon in 1985, which is a, quote, comedy chiller about two radio murder mystery actors who decide to get married in a very supernatural mansion. It also, of course, stars Gilda Radner as his wife-to-be and Dom DeLuise as Wilder's character's aunt. Yeah, and I love Dom DeLuise so much. And during this time, Radner misses her period. And so she took a pregnancy test on the set and then later at home, and both were positive, so they took a walk down the street, Wilder said... Did you? When they were taking this walk, she said the weather was warm and we'd held on to each other and sang quietly while our brains darted through this new phase of our life. We like to sing the song Ohio in harmony when we were happy, mainly because I've got the harmony down for the whole song, except for one line near the end. I never get it right. And that always makes us laugh. But unfortunately, a few weeks later, she starts bleeding heavily, which was chalked up to a miscarriage. After having extreme fatigue, not leaving her be- bed for days, and pain in her upper legs while on the set of Haunted Honeymoon, she seeks medical treatment. And unfortunately, 
they, they fuck that up royally for 10 months. Man, they fuck it up royally. To the point where when she gets diagnosed, she actually is happy in a sense because finally, she said, finally someone believes me. They, one doctor literally said, you're full of shit. Well, because her gynecologist said Ugh. that she had Epstein-Barr and also middle schmerz. Middle schmerz? I don't know how to pronounce this what? properly. Who which knows? is Whatever. essentially, I believe, a Yiddish word, or at least it seems like it, but it's a, it's like what women, it's like having women's hysteria. PMS. Women's hysteria. Which is like, yeah. this is 1980, what, five? 1986? Yeah. How, what are you fucking talking about? And so she wrote that it was it was fitting diseases for the queen of neurosis <laughs> and making jokes about this when, when in reality it was a misdiagnosis. And she kept saying, she's like, but something else is wrong with me. There's something else. This isn't right. It's so crazy. I don't understand because they could do IVF and see inside her body, but they couldn't see this giant tumor. tumor? I don't know, right. man. I don't Ugh. know. So eventually in 1986, she is diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, which immediately had her put into surgery to get a hysterectomy. Of course, that's where they remove your uterus, which meant definitely, obviously, the, there's no baby. And she said, my jokes are my only weapon against this fucker. Yep, I love that quote. Also, <sighs> uh, surgeons removed a grapefruit-sized tumor from her abdomen. Good God, that must have been painful. The National Enquirer then, of course, runs a headline asserting that Radner is definitely dying using a picture of her looking scared from an SNL sketch. Radner said what they did probably sold newspapers, but it had a devastating effect on my family and yeah. friends. She had Gene Wilder put out a press release explaining what was going on, saying, you know, with and, and saying that there was hope and that they were, you know, things were progressing to try to put people at ease. She goes through chemotherapy with Wilder right by her side, staying with Especially her in the hospital Especially in bed. the doc, you watch that she, because this harkens back to her and all of her characters. What's Jackie doing? And Is she her, laughing? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Is Jackie having fun right now? Yes, I'm having fun. Why did fun. she stop talking? That did in she? the doc, when they're <laughs> filming her going through her chemo, because she felt more comfortable if there was a camera on her, because then she could be funny while right. it was going on, and then she could pretend that it was a character that was going through it, and not her going through it. And that is really special footage, by the way. They had a full cut of the documentary done, and then they, she got access, the woman who made the documentary got access to a storage facility in Michigan that was like for the Radner family, and that had that videotape in it. They thought that was lost footage. Aww. And it also had a bunch of stuff that they ended up incorporating into the documentary as well. And that was like, yeah, it's kind of amazing that you can actually go and watch that in Love, Gilda. Mm -hmm. There's sure. apparently another video that wasn't in the documentary that uh, apparently one day in the midst of her chemotherapy treatments, Radner puts on a raincoat and goes walking on the street. A car comes by and splashes her with mud. She says, that's me, loudly to herself, cancer woman. You can do anything <laughs> to me. I can walk <laughs> through storms. I can get splashed by cars. I can have millions of treatments. You can radiate me. You can give me poisons, but you can't destroy me because I'm <laughs> cancer woman. She also also did she did clearly deep battle with staying positive and things and one thing that greatly helped her was this community of cancer patients that she found that completely turned her around in so many ways especially after she lost her her signature hair yeah um that it's just so hard that was the part that made me cry the most i don't want to talk about it too much that you know but that is so sad um Okay, jeez, now you got me, damn it. All right, she got to see all of her old castmates one last time in March of 1987 at Lorraine Newman's 35th birthday party. Uh, when they realized, ugh, 
Great. Now I'm fucked up. Stop it's it. It's sad. <laughs> Matt, Natalie, be the witch. I can't. Natalie, scare I'm going to cry too. <laughs> when they realized she was leaving, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd carried her around the house to say goodbye to everyone over and over again. All right, fine. I made it through without crying. But also, there was a little bit of light here at, around the end of 1987 and the beginning of 1988. She was told she had gone into remission. And she ends up making an appearance on It's Gary Shandling's show, which is hilarious. Well, because, yeah, because Zweibel had co-created it, and she went to him and was like, Zweibel, please help me make my cancer funny. And he had said when she did the Shandling show, oh, my God, that clip of it in the talk. So There was good. a live audience there. It wasn't only the crew. There were 300 people in the studio. She had the best time in the world. She fed off of the audience. It was amazing, like, when she... Ugh. When, you know, it was really amazing when she walks out. <laughs> and then every, because she thought that everyone was going to forget about her. And they, of course they didn't. And in fact, right afterwards, it, it went so well that Zweibel and Gary Shandling started developing a TV series for her at HBO. But as we know, the disease caught up to her again, Zweibel says. And obviously it won out in the end. But she got a taste of TV again. She got a taste of performing in front of people and hearing immediate laughs. <laughs> ah, there's more. This is worse than the Joan episode. There's more. Joan is a way old ass yeah, woman. no, it's way worse because <laughs> she was old ass. Gilda Radner was too young to go. Yeah, yeah. And, and Gene Wilder was just man. He was there for her through all of this, and apparently, at one moment, he recalled in his memoir when Radner would take her. She started getting angry, and he would take her. She would take her anger out on him, and he would explode in kind, saying, "I don't know how to help you any more than I'm doing." Um, very sad. Is that That's the it. end of the quote? That's oh. the end of the quote. It's <laughs> just sad. Just, just sad. I will say though, too, the Gary Shandling appearance was also really important because this again. So we've got a first for everything: making fun of news anchors, saying the word "bitch," and also <laughs> openly joking about cancer. And I love that he asked her where she'd been, why she'd been away from the public eye. She said, "Oh, I had cancer. What did you have?" What did you and Chandler have? answers a very bad series of career moves, and it was just so funny. Um, and so, of course, in May of 1989, she goes in the hospital for a CT scan after the cancer returned and went into a coma after giving a sedative, and she passes away three days later with Wilder by her side. Apparently, on her way to the CT scan, she was fighting to get off the gurney because she felt like she shouldn't go in with it, oh, and she pleaded God. with Gene Wilder to help her get out of there. Can you imagine that that was the last time that he talked to her, and then while uh. she was unconscious... Uh, she passed away and Wilder never got to say goodbye. Jesus Christ. Well, I think that's a funny joke. <laughs> oh my God, is the hands man back? Hold oh, bring the hands man back. <laughs> no, make it funnier. Oh. Silly hands man back, but silly hands man no, back. It's very sad. <laughs> <laughs> silly hands man is definitely oh. crying and not scary anymore. He's just very sad. He's just, I think that's even scarier. Yeah. <laughs> so that same night, Steve Martin was getting ready to host the season finale of SNL. <sighs> and when the news broke, they scrapped the opening monologue to instead show that clip from 1978 of him and Radner doing the big dance number parody from the bandwagon. Did you watch that? Did you watch that it's clip? It's so good. I oh, definitely, it's I, so it is, good. It, is it so, wasn't on YouTube, but I found it on no. some other weird site. Yeah, I and found it's it so on, emotional. It's, 
he's just you like you can see that Steve Martin just is still processing this information and he has to go out there. And he says, Gilda, we miss you at the end. And it's Ugh. so it's so emotional. Natalie, you were supposed to be the emotionless vampire of the show. Can you please stop crying? Because you're the one. <laughs> you're not supposed to break. <laughs> I'm not emotionless. This is sad, I'm not emotionless. I was just I was like reading through. I was like, what? Does Sparkle the dog die now too? When does Sparkle the dog die? So there is a little bit of light from this. Wilder would go on to establish the Gilda Radner Hereditary Cancer Program at Cedar Sinai because she didn't have to die, and this was something yeah, that he it's so fought. sad. He fought. He says he said I was shouting at the walls. I kept thinking to myself, this doesn't make sense. He came to realize that her cancer might have been caught in time to save if her doctors had given her a particular diagnostic blood test, or if they'd asked her about her family's health yeah, history, she her grandmother, like- her cousin, her aunt. All died from ovarian cancer, and then her father also died from a tumor that they found inside of him. And apparently, Gene Wilde said, all along, I kept hearing Gilda saying, don't just sit there, dummy. Do something. So he started the guild. He started Gilda's Club, and he went. He appeared before a House subcommittee to testify about ovarian cancer, prompting a commitment of thirty million dollars for research. He established the Gilda Radner Ovarian Detection Center at Cedar Sinai and co-founded Gilda's Club, which has grown to be the largest cancer support network in the country. And he did that with uh, Joe Siegel and Gilda's psychiatrist Joanna Bull. It is a clubhouse for people with cancer, family, and friends to. Learn how to live with it. It's very fun and not fun at all because Holden and I put the same very beautiful quote <laughs> at the end of both of our research. Who's when gonna I read saw it? Natalie can't like, even read it. It's Who's gonna read it? <laughs> all right, I will. I will try, and if I fall off, someone's gonna have to pick up. I wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned the hard way. <laughs> this is Gilda Radner. This is what she wrote. She wrote this down while she was. Um, Undergoing chemo. I'm not gonna, I can't read it. You have to keep going. I can try to read it. I wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Life is not about knowing, having to change, taking the moment, and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. Delicious ambiguity. Ambiguity. Delicious ambiguity, and that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And uh, can you imagine Gene Wilder's next wife? Because he marries someone else. Can you imagine? I can't. I can't. I can't imagine going. Well, I'm glad that. he found that again. Me I mean, I'm too. glad he didn't because I, I was afraid be the story was. Yes. I, I I know the story generally was like he had this romance with her. He stepped away from acting afterwards. I was so scared to see that he went to some castle somewhere and lived at the top of it alone for the rest of his life. And I'm glad he found love. (laughs) He did. And he needed it because you're right. I think that she would have been uh, support that fully. And just watching her in the end, especially when she would put when she's like, I could put wigs on when she lost all of her hair and she put that that head covering on instead and she was trying to be a character. She tried mm-hmm. so much to just, to put that shield up again. Well, it just, I think that's why it's so sad is that it was, it it didn't feel right that she went. It, she wasn't supposed to die She then. wasn't supposed to go yet. Right. And it was a preventable 
death that just the people failed her and they didn't do what they were supposed to do but uh, I am just I'm proud of Gene Wilder so have fun at your work day person <laughs> listening to this I hope you're fucking enjoying it I'm sorry, sorry. life is temporary I'm sometimes sorry. things happen out of your control that you can't do anything about and that's I think why you have eating disorders that, and stuff I think the good the way that you that you ended it is good because the takeaway is that you just have to embrace what's happening and make something good out of it. You, she did that every time she had problems, like she mm-hmm. did her, her whole life. And you just have to take what you have. And it's not always even a curse like that. Your challenges can be a blessing and it can it, it can have ripple effects in ways that you can't even understand. Was that like the witch's them. curse? Or are you saying that you, you just curse? I don't us? know. Did you might, just curse all of us, you witch? It might be a witch's curse. <laughs> all of this. Um, all right. We have to be done. I really did appreciate doing this episode. It really did answer a lot of questions that I had about her about her and Gene Wilder about all of these things I never got around to seeing Love Gilda till just now Love Gilda check it out it is on rentable right I think I rented it on uh, it's on Hulu if you pay for Hulu Hulu. it's on Hulu yeah but you can also rent it on YouTube yes but yeah you can rent it on I think anything it's so good it's and yes of course you'll probably cry but I will say they were pretty delicate with it I didn't feel like they didn't do the thing at the end of the movie where they were really just hammering it home like they 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 handled it with care. It was and, lighter and than I thought it was going to be. It was more about the rest of her life. It was lighter than I thought it was going to be, and I appreciated that. So so watch that and enjoy that. Thank you guys for sticking. Who cares it. about the Patreon at no, this point? It uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> None of it matters. My name's Holden McNeely, and you can find me on Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. But like, or just whatever and we then can patreon. cry we can cry together this friday if you want you patreon.com forward slash uh page seven podcast if you'd like to support us further we're not just doing an episode a week anymore there's all this extra stuff that jackie's pumping out it's kind of amazing check it out am i like gilda can i be like gilda yeah i want you to be just you like are. gilda because that'll be really fun for me in a few years um <laughs> jackie and natalie what's your pointless uh social media <laughs> yeah. stuff no, go watch Trollville on the LP. Uh, <laughs> That's last not podcast. pointless. That's, That's really not good. Pointless. That's it's free. Fun. It's free. Go watch it. We're putting out an episode a week, and um, you know, uh, page seven LPN on socials. I'm the, at the Natty Jean, and I promise next week we won't do a cry episode. Yeah, we're gonna do happy stuff for a while, and then we'll get back to the cry stuff later. Oh yeah, don't worry. The cry stuff is never too far away. My name is Jackie Zabrowski. You can follow me on Instagram at Jack That Worm. Go hug someone you love today. <laughs> Go hug someone you don't love today, except don't, because we're not supposed to touch anyone right now. We but should six mark feet away. Christ, we should mark the Cry Stuff podcast with like a Cry Stuff warning in our. Ooh, I like that. We we'll start putting it at the top just of a this. Single like, tear you probably drop. will yeah, cry. Just like a, a little cry face emoji, just so you know, <laughs> Cry Stuff happens in the episode. Um, all right, that's we it. Love Thank you, you guys. so much, everybody. We'll talk to you Love next you week, and I promise we're only going to smile and laugh next yeah, week. No <laughs> sad stuff. Only, yeah, no <laughs> Bye. Bye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, 
no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.